0: A podcast one production. Hello, my name's Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the unknown stories behind the food that we all love. Adam Liao and I had a lovely chat and part of that chat was about his wonderful grandmother who he clearly loved very much. In the time since recording this episode and this going live, sadly, Adam's grandmother passed away, somewhat unexpectedly, which Adam has spoken about online. In listening back to this episode, I'm so glad we got to talk about his grandmother and that we're able to capture the very essence of who this remarkable woman was. Take a listen. Were you a big family of foodies when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, I I think every ethnic family is when you become a migrant family, I guess, um, food is such an important part of retaining the culture of your home the place that you've come from that it is inevitable that you're all going to always going to love food. I mean we we ate very very as children, you know, we had uh steak and chips and you know my mother's side of the family is English so we had that influence as well but um uh, she grew up in Singapore and so our, our main kind of food was that Malaysian Chinese Singaporean style food um that we ate and there are so many cultural kind of steps throughout the year. You've got Chinese New Year. You've got, uh, you know, winter solstice, spring solstice, that, that kind of thing. And, and you have specific foods that go along with those. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. We love food when we were kids. Where did you grow up? Uh, Adelaide, mainly, in the hills. From, from um, what age? So were you... Came to Australia when I was three and... Uh, Lived there until I was twenty three, so twenty twenty odd years in Adelaide.
0: All right. And did, your mum and dad uh, divorced, didn't you? And your mum yeah. moved
1: to New Zealand. So did that? Did you move to New Zealand, or did you stay here in no, Australia? No, I, I stayed. That was <laughs> that was a, a, a good move in the end. But I was fourteen at that time, and my dad lived in the country uh, in Wyala and my mum had moved to New Zealand, as you say. And I had to stay because I was in year eleven at that point, needed to finish my schooling. So I stayed in a house that. Uh, my dad owned in Adelaide with my older brother, and my grandma was there probably half the time. She was living mainly in Malaysia at that point, but also sort of half the time in Australia as well and uh, we had to learn how to cook very very quickly uh, at that age to or else go hungry. you started smiling when you talked about that little moment
0: of your life was were there pivotal moments before that, or was that a, a period of life in your life that you
1: remember when you were young? um I remember that because that was that was the big change you know there, there were lots of big changes, I guess you know when I was very young growing up. We came to Australia. Um, obviously, when my parents split up, I remember that very, very clearly when my uh, mum got together with my stepdad and we were living in a big house with six kids and then a seventh came along. That was uh, that was really great fun, actually. That was one of the, the funnest times of my life. And then, obviously, at uh, 14, when I kind of had to go out on my own, that was, uh, that was the biggest change, I think. When you described the fun, what did that mean at the time? Chaos. <laughs> you know, just people everywhere, kids everywhere. Um, lots of, I guess, responsibility. Um, I think it was a really great formative time for me because when you've got that many kids, you know, particularly after your parents' divorce, kids can become very needy and demand a lot. I have my own kids now and I know how needy kids can be, <laughs> but they can start to demand a lot of parental attention. And then when we got into this, a family of seven kids now, Um, there wasn't really a lot of parental attention to go around. You know, they they loved us very much and spent as much time as they could with us, but we got to um, solve our own problems and build relationships with our brothers and sisters, and we all had a great time. What were some of the problems, do you remember? We can talk about the good stuff as well,
0: (laughs) good? what was the good and what was the bad? We didn't have
1: a lot of problems, to be honest. We were all pretty happy. You know, I was sleeping Mm -hmm. in a a garage um, with my brother and my stepbrother at the time, and uh, it could barely fit three beds in there. It was just literally a uh, an old wardrobe where we threw all of our clothes and um, that was all there was room for in there. But we tended to, we had a really good camaraderie between all of us kids. We all got along really well. So um, we didn't have a lot of problems, to be honest. So was it a mixed family? Um, it was, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, we, um, my brother and sister uh, are, I guess we, you would call us half English, half Chinese. And then my... Um, stepdad's family is—he's English, English. So they were, but grew up in Australia. So uh, his, he was very British, but his kids were very Aussie. And um, I remember dinner was always—if we were having beef for dinner, for example, half of it would be beef stroganoff, and half of it would be beef and oyster sauce, and that would just go down on the table altogether.
0: And, and what would what were your first memories of, say, uh, you know, Malaysian Chinese food that you grew up with, say, on that on the other side of the family?
1: I remember being very proud that I was the first one of our uh, us kids to eat spicy food, to be able to, because my my grandma has an extremely, and she was the one that did most of the cooking when we were young. She has an extremely kind of spicy palate, a real taste for chili, and there was all there would always have to be a, a very mild version for us kids, as, as um, most kids are quite averse to spice. But I remember just. I didn't want to have the kids' version all the time. I wanted to get on, on the adults' version because there are a lot of those Malaysian dishes that are quite spicy. And so I would um, start to incorporate a bit of chili into mine. And then all of a sudden, I, I was the only one of the, the three kids at that point who was eating the adult version of the dish. And my brother and sister were eating the kids' version. I felt very grown up. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's like a badge of honor. Uh, your grandmother, what was her
1: name? Uh, her name is uh, Eng, I okay. guess. So quite she's still, still alive, yeah, still she, around. She's, uh, she's still kicking.
0: And what do you remember her cooking or what do you remember about her in the kitchen? Do you remember that kind of thing when you were small?
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. She, so, she was she was always cooking constantly. You know, there was – there's you, you get triggered by certain smells or even sounds and like even the sound of a mortar and pestle going. That reminds me of my grandma because there was so many times where I could hear her and you don't bash a mortar and pestle on a kitchen bench, which I – uh, is, is my kind of thing. I always take it outside like she did and put it on the ground and bash it on the ground down there because you, you just can't get the right action on a good mortar and pestle on a kitchen bench. And it um, you know, smells of certain things cooking. In in Malaysian cooking, there's a lot of uh, uh, a frying of, uh, of what's called a rumpa, I guess like a, a Asian version of a mirepoix, I guess you'd, you'd call it. And it cooks for a very, very long time and it co- it gets very, very fragrant and it fills the whole house with the smell of you know, galangal and ginger and garlic and onion and that kind of thing. And um, yeah, she would make all kinds of things. You know, it, it's there's the day to day cooking and then there's kind of when you really want a particular dish type of cooking. <laughs> and back in those days, this was the the early 80s, I guess, in Adelaide, and you couldn't just pop down the road and get a Luxor if you wanted one. So if you wanted a Luxor, you had to go and make one. And if you wanted bakute, which is like a herbal. Um, pork bone tea is what it translates to, you, you know, that's one of my favorite dishes. And you certainly couldn't buy that anywhere in Adelaide at that point, so you'd have to make it. And so we had the things that you'd have day to day, you know, rice and a chicken curry or uh, fried noodles or, um, any kind of very, very simple stir fry. But then they'd be like, oh, you know what? We're having Hunanese chicken rice this week. And it'd always be the, the our, our favorite dish was always that. Um, and you could see it. You could see it coming. You know. You might hear the chili being pounded one day. and go, oh, I reckon ch- chicken rice is coming <laughs> in the next couple of days. And then you'd see a chicken being boiled to make the soup. You go, oh, yep, yeah, I'm onto it. And then the rice would be cooked, and the chicken would be served, and you'd, you'd get it
0: right. As much as she, you know, th- those memories of cooking. Are there moments that you you think back on and go, there's a lesson in life out of that out of that kitchen?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, cooking's not just fuel. <laughs> she wasn't cooking those dishes because she felt that that was the thing that we needed to get the right nutrients to get through the day. There was a huge cultural element to it. There was a huge uh, element of, I guess, love and care that went into it as well. She wanted to make those dishes for us. I remember her cooking, she doesn't eat beef. She has never eaten beef. Uh, late late 50s, she stopped eating beef. Um, and is and, there a reason for that? Yeah, she was... Uh, Uh, That was when her husband died and her firstborn son was very sick and she went to a fortune teller uh, and the fortune teller said, it's quite sad actually because she told her, you can't eat beef anymore and also you're very unlucky so you can't have your kids call you mum anymore. So for years and years and years, her kids would call her auntie to to like trick the evil spirits into um, not thinking that that was her mum. And um, yeah, so she... Yeah, you know, they they call her mum now. My dad calls his his mum mum. Finally, after all these years, but for years they didn't. And she also, but she still hasn't eaten beef since that time. What was the reason behind the beef? I wonder. I have no idea. You have to ask a, a presumably long dead fortune
0: teller. <laughs> it just came up with a random idea, yeah. for some poor passerby. Yeah. and is she a very superstitious? No, person? not not really. So just that
1: I'd little like, moment that possibly maybe changed. that time of her life when things had gone. Really bad, and you know, uh, not. Uh, I sound like I'm mocking the fortune teller now, but after that happened, she won the lottery. She bought a cafe in uh, like rural uh, Malaysia, earned enough money out of that to send her kids to school. Kids did well, became doctors, etc. And here we are today. <laughs> wow! Now there's a story.
0: So you were uh, at school. I've read that you were. You finished school early. You know, sounded like you were a clever kid. Yeah, Studious. a little, little bit early. <laughs> Tell us about that.
1: um, So I skipped a few years when I was very young, entered school quite early. So I I think I graduated just after I turned 16. That's when I went to uni. My brother was even uh, smarter. He finished school at 15 and um, then spent a good 10 years at uni after that, (laughs) trying to uh, get back on an even keel. But I I was, um, yeah, pretty good at school, I guess. Where did that come from? I don't know. It's something my wife asks me all the time now, because now that we have our own kids, we want them to do well. We want them to have the same kind of, uh, um, I guess, scholastic success, uh, if you can call it that, that that me and my brother had. But I I personally think, and this is what it comes down to me as a a parent now, (laughs) is that you, you can't just want to do well at school. You've got to be in love with the process of learning things. And I hated school. I hated studying. I hated, because to me, studying wasn't learning. You know, you you can't go through a book and you read something once and then let's read that 50 more times and then write an essay about it. To me, that wasn't learning. It was like the, 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 the process of gathering information was really interesting to me. And then in my view, the interesting stuff stays in there and the rest of it can can get out, for, <laughs> leave leave more room for the, for the interesting stuff. So um, you know, I I don't want to ke- teach my kids facts. Uh, I if they're interested in learning facts, they will learn for them learn them in, themselves. But um, I find it now when I'm learning languages, some people are in love with the idea of learning a language and l- love finding out what this new word means. You know, I. I like learning languages because it allows me to do things that I find interesting. So um, I spent years trying to learn Chinese with not a huge amount of success. But then when I went to Japan and learned Japanese, the thing that I think allowed me to learn Japanese relatively quickly and easily was that um, I loved Japanese food and I would translate menus and I would translate cookbooks and I would go buy cookbooks in Japanese and then just read them even though I couldn't read them. And if there wasn't a word that I, that I understood, I would, uh, you know, look it up and research it and, and find out what that meant. So it, I think facts and figures are kind of a, a means to an end when it comes to knowledge. It's good to have, you know, it's good to know why certain things happen and how things work, but um, just the idea of knowing something for knowing's sake is less interesting than the process of acquiring knowledge Mm. to me.
0: Is this something that's occurred to you as you've got older? Because when you look at your next step, when you left school, you went to study law. Mm. That seems kind of in opposition from everything you just told me in the last minute, because you would have to (laughs) learn. Not if you study law like I studied law. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there we go. You can tell us about
1: that. Which is mainly being at the pub at uni and then turning up to a couple of exams. (laughs) Well, you must be pretty clever. So
0: why did you go and study law? I mean, because obviously we know you as the Passionate cook that yeah. you are, and the, and I suppose the teacher now. You're, you know, taking your travels and your recipes, and you're passing those on. Why? Why law? Was it something that was expected of you, or that you thought no, was not, a?
1: Not really. I mean, I, I've I come from a, a long line of, of doctors. Now, my parents are both doctors. My brother and sister are both doctors, and I kind of the only one that that didn't become a doctor. But um, for me, law was uh, it was by accident. To be honest, I was lining up to have lunch with a mate, and um, he. Said, I can't have lunch today because I'm going to apply to law school. And I was like, okay, I'll tag along with you and did the same. And um, I really enjoyed law though. You know, it was good because it was the law, I think, is very practical and very uh, methodical. You know, things make sense when you put them into a legal framework, which could easily be termed a thinking framework. You know, how does why does the court come to that decision? It's not because they liked that guy and didn't like the other guy. It's because there was a set of rules and a pathway to follow that if you understand that, you wouldn't even need to go to court in the first place because you'd know how it would end up. Yeah, interesting. So what was the young... Because you left at 21,
0: you qualified, uh, yeah. is that right? Yeah. So what was young Adam like uh, just before he left uni?
1: I had three days off after my final exam before I started work at the, the law firm that I got a job at. Um, and that was really in the deep end. That was back in the days when uh, South Australia was selling its electricity entities, privatising um, the electricity framework there and straight out of law school went into working, you know, up to 22 hours a day sleep, sleeping under the desk um, for a whole year. We did that. It was, um, it was a really frantic, frantic period and that's why, they, you know, they had to employ so many lawyers back then because it was not easy to get a job out of law school, particularly into you know a, a really good firm and so I, I felt that i got quite lucky to to get that opportunity um how lucky
0: did you feel though waking up in the morning having slept under the desk <laughs>
1: like, to, to me it was more exciting than than school to be honest you know studying was always kind of i, I had the feeling that you know it, it's nice to know all of this stuff and it's good to understand how <clears throat> it works but you you sort of chomping at the bit to put it into practice and then yeah. finally you were putting it into practice in the most boring way possible, but that was still more interesting than, than the theory of it. So where did it lead you? Because it, it, it's, it took you to Japan, didn't it? Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so Why I, did it take you to, to Japan?
1: It was all the rage back then for young lawyers in Adelaide anyway, but all across Australia to um, move to England mainly uh, because you could earn three times your salary. <clears throat> Pound was very strong. If you had uh, ancestry rights to work like... Seemingly all of Adelaide does, including myself. You could just get on a plane and get a British passport and uh, work there and earn a lot more money in a big city. You know, Adelaide's a relatively small town. I love it to death, but it doesn't have the same opportunities as London does. So how did did your love of food develop then from...
0: Because I, I presume you're embroiled in being a lawyer and working hard and developing a career. Are things starting to kind of diverge at this stage or...? not or, or not really,
1: really. Uh, you know i i still consider food a, a hobby as well as kind of my profession now i guess but as I, when i was a lawyer I was uh, i i was never unhappy with being a lawyer i wasn't sitting there going i have some burning passion to to do something else because i really loved being a lawyer i still would wouldn't mind doing it again but um a weekend i'd have people around to my apartment and host a cooking class and teach them how to make dumplings or something like that. And uh, that was good fun. That was enough for me. But that's not normal behaviour. I'm not making fun of you <laughs> uh, because, you know, I, I'm,
0: in, I'm in the same uh, bubble as you. But that's not yeah. normal behaviour. People don't throw – Isn't it? I uh, thought it was pretty normal. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't, I don't know many people outside kind of foodie nerds. You know, and I'm a foodie nerd
1: too, but I don't know many people that throw a cooking class for okay. for friends. Maybe I am weird. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, you know, maybe it isn't all that ordinary. But um, yeah, that was one of the ways that I was learning about Japanese food. I'd it... say to someone, "Come over to my place and show yeah. me how to do this," because I'm really interested in to know how to make fried chicken or something. How, to, how does your mum make it? And I'll show you how to do um, make wontons or something. I think, and I was just reading here.
0: And apparently, this is on wiki. Your victory is and was the most watched non sports event. I remember that um, <laughs> in Australian hitch history. Um, what do you put
1: that down to? Oh this is the media lawyer in me coming out again <laughs> now. you know media has become fragmented since two thousand and ten, Gary, and so people are watching on multiple screens <laughs> so it's um, unlikely that you 'll get five million viewers on a on a free to wear channel ever again Ever again. now with all the things that people ever watched but yeah. Still, at that point, you know, that I, I think the level of interest in, in that particular season of MasterChef is, is unprecedented. Um, I think Australia has not had, had not had enough of a focus on food at that point. If you look at the other food-mad countries on earth, like Japan or France or even the US, there was so much food media to consume there. And we didn't have a lot. You know, we had Huey, we had... Uh, the Galloping Gourmet or uh, Jeff Jantz, a couple of, couple of things there where if you really wanted to watch recipes, you could go and watch them. And I grew up watching those shows, loved them, loved them to death. But Master Jeff was kind of the first show that I'd seen. And I actually didn't see it at all in the first season because I was overseas. And then didn't see the second season, obviously, because I was on it. And I only saw it really for the first time <laughs> on television in, in season three. But it was the first show that I'd seen in Australia that put food into a cultural or personal context. And I think that resonates really well with people because for most people, food is cultural and it is personal. And um, it's not just about recipes of put this into that and you'll end up with something that tastes good. They want to see, you know, what it means to people. Has, has your mindset
0: shifted from lawyer to now person that makes their living out of food? You know, was it a time in MasterChef or post that?
1: Yeah, I, I kind of approach it all the same way. I I've never thought that there's much benefit in trying to fragment your life too much. I remember, somebody asked me the other day about work-life balance because obviously I travel a lot and I've got kids, and I think that's just a a really terrible way to put it. You know, if you if you were looking at Every every minute that you spend working is time away from your kids, and every minute you spend with your kids is time you're neglecting in providing for them. That's that's a terrible way to live. And if you're doing multiple things, even more than that, you know, if there's not just work and life, but if there's work and sport and family and friends, and then all of a sudden, all you're doing is losing out. You know, I, I personally think that if I'm spending time with my kids, cooking for them, it makes me better at writing a cookbook or presenting a TV series or any of the other things that I do before. If, and if I'm working, it makes me a better parent, I guess. You know, I, I always try and find ways to, to make everything pull in the same direction. And uh, I think that's when you get the most success. Because nope. if you're pulling away from your family to give to your work and you're pulling away from your work to give to your family, then you're just going to be at war with yourself the whole time.
0: This is a Plate to call home and I'm Gary Meegan. More from Adam after the break. Your presence on social media is I think it's quite funny. I actually like your perspective on, on lots of things. Sometimes I go, Adam, like, what are you doing? And I'm always tempted to respond, but I, know, I, I think I've done it once in like you know six years, but never never do it because I, I like your perspective on stuff. And BuzzFeed has um, given you your own list. That was in 2015. And there was lots of tweets that stood out. Uh, there was one that we, we wrote down or I wrote down, which was, Weird How. Japan has the longest life expectancy and the lowest obesity rate in the developed world, but nobody eats vegan, paleo, or gluten-free. Let's discuss. <laughs> do you get bombarded?
1: I do. I get into a lot of trouble <laughs> on social media, and I, you know, you've it, but, you
0: but you keep going. And, I, and, there was a, <laughs> and I'm going to make you answer that one. There was one that I took it. Why does Gordon Ramsay's haircut look <laughs> like it just swiped right on your Tinder profile? <laughs>
1: He's incredibly youthful, Gordon. That was just a couple of weeks ago. I I felt a little bit bad about that. Soup saves (laughs) lives. And then you go back to food. So what I like about it is you make
0: these random comments and then you go back and you go, soup saves lives, soup um, with pork tofu. And, you know, there's obviously a recipe that you've done. But I I love stuff like that. What kind of reaction? How do you deal with the reaction? Because surely if I put something out like that, I I think I'd be um, rocking in a corner for a week.
1: (laughs) I get... You know you' got to have a really thick skin, I think, and you've also got to learn your own lessons you know i i I have opinions, everyone has opinions, but sometimes when we express our opinions, you can overreach a bit and you say something that's not quite <clears> your opinion or is maybe an extreme example of your opinion, and then I think you can regret it you know when you when you start to overreach and you start to think that your opinion is the only thing that counts then then I do regret it and I did back in the early days but these days you know if I say something on social media it tends to be what I believe, it tends to be something I've thought about for at least a fraction of a second (laughs) and um, if people are upset about that then and there's people, people are going to be upset with with anything that you do when you get a large enough sample size of people that are able to see what you do Um, so I don't tend to take it to heart too much. You know, there was a, there was a little bit sort of back in the beginning like, oh, wow, all of a sudden, if I say something stupid, everyone knows about it. But then there's all, also a lot of uh, times when I say something that I don't think is stupid and people disagree with it a lot. And then, you know, you got to stick to your guns and uh, strap up your boots or whatever, whatever, whatever yeah. the saying is. But you, you can't let trolls and people that disagree with you stop you from having your own opinion. Do you, do you
0: think about it or do you not think about it? Does it bother you or does it not
1: bother you? I, I deliberately don't block or um, avoid criticism uh, on social media or any, anywhere else really. No, I like to be able to see it because, you know, that's that's feedback, even if it's from a complete idiot. <laughs> it's still feedback and you got to understand that you're not just putting stuff out there. You're not just writing a book or a column or a TV show or anything that, is just for people who are drinking your Kool-Aid. There's there's people there who um, hate you, people who hate everything that you stand for, but they're still going to see what you do. And you wouldn't want to pander to them, but you also wouldn't want to ignore the fact that that's the most extreme example of someone who would not write back to you on social media and abuse you for for something. But there, there's probably a person who's got 10% of that going, I don't really like this guy and his recipe kind of sucks and I'm irritated by that now. And you go, okay, yeah. I, I. If you can, I guess, take a, a 10% opacity filter of the worst criticism you get, then it's kind of valid criticism.
0: Right. I mean, I've got a 17-year-old and they're very bothered by one or two comments that I've thrown out there and may not mean anything.
1: My, my view is it's always the, the things that affect you the most or the things that hurt you the most are always... It's never a thing that somebody says to you. It's, a, it's the doubt inside yourself that you haven't done the right thing so or that you have a particular flaw that is being exploited. So if you go call a skinny person fat, they will, they will not care because they don't see themselves as fat, they don't understand... Uh, why that would be a negative thing. But if you are a little bit overweight, somebody calls you fat, then you're going to take that more to heart, not because they've called you fat and because that person's mean. I don't care too much that there are mean people in the world. But if it's a reflection on a flaw that you see in yourself, then that's what you start to take to heart. The criticism that gets to me the most is when it kind of pulls on a nerve that of something that I already understand that is a flaw in myself. And like everyone, I have my own flaws, but the, that's kind of the thing I like about criticism. It, it lets you see the flaws that you have in yourself that sometimes you don't really even realise that you have. Well, they can be painful sometimes, yeah, yeah, it? it is. I put <laughs> them in little boxes, Adam, and, and bury them deep in the brain somewhere. What makes you happy? <laughs> what well, makes me happy? Oh, it can be yeah. kids. I mean, I, no, that, it, it is my kids. I, I love spending time with them. They frustrate the hell out of me, but I I, I, I love spending time with my kids. So being dad's been a, a special thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. It teaches you a lot about uh, yourself, I think, and you, you it pulls into very sharp focus the kind of person that you want to be because that's the kind of person you want to see in your kids. Mm. You've got to make the most of it while they're young because you're still a hero. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: when they start, que- Dad, don't believe that, <laughs> questioning your point of view. Um, what inspires you? Uh, probably the same thing.
1: You know, I It's a bit of a cop-out answer, I think, to a question just to say everything's about my kids, but it kind of is. But on a personal level, I think that Parents can get a bit too caught up in their kids. I know that I can sometimes, thinking that doing everything for them and you forget who you are for yourself. And I I really try hard to be a bit more selfish, I guess, and not just to devote everything to my kids, but also think about, you know, what is is it that interests me? What is it that, um, you know, I don't want my kids to think that they need to be a slave to their kids and I don't want to be a slave to my own kids. Love them to death, but I think the best thing that I can do for them is to teach them how to be a good person, and that means kind of looking after yourself as well. Yeah, and, well. and
0: they're, they're growing up a different, in a different way to the way you grow up. Absolutely. Also growing up with a famous dad, which is a different thing to deal with.
1: I'll leave you to think about that one. <laughs> um, proudest moment? Oh, you're going to say your kids again, no, are you? No, proudest uh, moment? Uh, I think when I graduated from law school, to be honest, because I think one of the, one of the issues with going through school relatively young is it's kind of a gamble. You know, for your parents anyway, they're like, "Is is this going to work out?" Are we putting your kid through school young. There's a lot of pressure on you, a lot of uh, expectation that you're going to do something half decent at the end of it. It's like it's not like everyone through twelve years of schooling um, is telling you that you're clever and you're going to do great things and all of that. And then you go, you turn around at the end of it and you go, "Well, I buggered it all up." <laughs> you know, you don't want to, you don't want to let everyone down. So I guess when I graduated from law school, it was like, "Okay, here's now a piece of paper." That proves that I didn't bugger it up for you guys. I don't have to be a lawyer for the rest of my life. Certainly, I'm not now. But it was pride, but also a little bit getting the monkey off your back. I guess. Interesting, isn't it? The Mm. what is that
0: comparison? Is the death of joy? (laughs) Mark (laughs) Twain. Lovely. I'm so careful about
1: that one. And what do you think life will look like in five years' time? I don't. I don't know, to be honest. I used to think I had a p- pretty clear idea of how everything was going to go, but I've been wrong about that so many times. <laughs> I've, I've got to stop backing myself in on my future predictions. But planning for your future is always a difficult thing, and I think it's often got to be a bit more defensive than offensive. You know, you can't say I want uh, I'm going to have X million dollars in X years, and I'm going to drive a really nice car and do all of those things. I, I think you've got to look at your risks, and if you can, I guess block your risks, then. It leaves you more adaptable for the future because you're not playing catch up. Mm hard to, I, it hard just to felt, describe just but. for
0: a minute there it felt like I was at Liao Law <laughs> and I paid 500 bucks for my uh, consult you, you can do get you, that one you, for free guys
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll take it but I like I like your thinking and, and I love the chat and it's uh, I don't know, know these things about you and I hope mm. that people have, that have listened have found that fascinating oh, it's been fun it, to talk about. because it makes sense of what we see on Twitter and the cookbooks that we see and the, and the journeys that you're taking so Adam I really appreciate your time thank you very much Gary What a lovely memory that Adam has about his grandmother's mortar and pestle. Most people buy their spices already ground in little packages, put them in the cupboard and leave them there for months. Guess what? They taste like sawdust. The best way of incorporating spices into your food is to grind them freshly. And even if you toast them a little bit, they're delicious. I also suggest that you buy little amounts at a time so you don't have coriander seeds or cumin seeds lying around in the cupboard. And of course they lose all those little volatile oils and flavors. I've seen lots of mortar and pestles in my time. Everything from kind of flat stones with big kind of stone shaped rolling pin mechanisms that you can smash and roll spice paste with just kind of really deep, you know, almost conical shaped mortar and pestles that keep everything inside. They don't go splashing around everywhere. But have a search, find something that's really solid, nice and heavy. Those tiny little medicinal things do nothing. They're not gonna be any good for tablespoons full of spices and give it a go. Lightly warm and toast spices in a pan, things like coriander, cumin, even star anise, just so they release all those little volatile flavors pop them in the mortar and pestle, smash them into a fine powder and put them in your food or even sprinkle them over your food like a little seasoning. It's delicious stuff. Once you get hooked, you can't stop. Mind you, if it's a tough paste, there's always electricity and a spice grinder to get you through the tough stuff. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Zwolenski. Audio production is Darcy Thompson and special thanks to Imogen Thomas for all the research.